0: There was a famous blog post written by Mark Andreessen a few years ago that was called Software is Eating the World, right? The idea was that everything that used to be done in hardware is not being done in software and, you know, software is eating up the world. Uh, I would say if software is eating the world, data and simulation is helping rebuild it, right? So if you go on Monday, think about everything that you use, your TV screen, your camera, your cooking systems, Right? look around you, your everyday life, and you say, if I had more data, how would my experience change? The fact that we're in a world where it's, you know, even pizza delivery places barely remember the pizza I ordered last time. So you have to every time enter the same damn thing again. Yes, I would like it with chicken on it. Yes, I would like the other half with green peppers. If, If that's where we are in the real world still, imagine the opportunity that lies ahead in the commercial world, like for you to build a company around it. Like if you could just personalize, customize, you know, use data to build better systems to predict the future and to be able to go build that. How powerful can it be? Welcome to the Digital Threshold
1: podcast, where we explore all the ways modern venues and facilities are reimagining their arrival experience. Today, we have a lot of ground to cover. I am very pleased to be speaking to Bilal Zuberi. Bilal and I've known each other for almost nine years now, um, before we started Evolve, as we were thinking about sort of what to build a company and a technology around. Welcome, Bilal. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. Great. So before we get talking about CES and technology trends, I want to go back a little ways. You came over from Pakistan uh, to the US. You did your schooling here. Uh, You went to MIT. Um, We can talk a little bit about the microphysics of astrophoric aerosols, but I'll I'll stumble on that quickly. But can you just talk a little bit about, you know, coming to the U.S., you know, what were you trying to get to here? Did you always think you wanted to get into technology? I find it very interesting to sort of hear the the motivation of immigrants. And my dad came here from India. Uh, He was educated uh, in India and sort of made his way here. And I, I think the stories are always really interesting. So if you could just share you know, what your motivation was, what you found when you got here, and sort of how you got your your feet under yourself.
0: Wow, we're going back in time, huh? Well, I'm a typical immigrant story in America. I couldn't be more proud of what I've accomplished, but also I couldn't be more thankful for what the opportunities I got uh, by being in this country and being able to come to this country. I grew up in a, what would be considered a lower middle class family in Pakistan. We call ourselves white callers because, you know, you always made sure that you had a house and that was the most important thing. Other than that, everything else you had to make, make do with what you had and pay rent at the end of the month. I was fortunate to be able to come here on a full scholarship to the US. I thought I would study here for four years, get my undergraduate degree, and then go back and try to find a job. I didn't understand the whole uh, immigration process of being able to stay here and work here. And my father, when I was leaving, told me, you know, hey, you should figure out, you know, how to make toothpaste. And I said, what? And, you know, this is back in the early 90s in Pakistan. We actually didn't have a lot of imported toothpaste. Toothpaste was really expensive in Pakistan. So he said, if you're going to America, you figure out how to make toothpaste, we can start a toothpaste factory. So I came to America and I started studying chemistry, thinking that I would learn how to make toothpaste. Well, turns out American universities, even for chemistry majors, don't really teach you how to make toothpaste. So, (laughs) So that dream ended pretty quickly. And I had to figure out what to do. You know, and then uh, I got a chance to learn about graduate school. And the most important thing I learned about graduate school was that in America, they pay you to go to graduate school in science. And the minute they says they said that, I said, sign me up. Like, what what do you mean? I get to study, I get to learn, and I get paid. I mean, you don't get paid a lot, but still, I mean, to a Pakistani guy, that was a lot of money. So, anyways, I ended up in grad school, I went to MIT. I worked under a Nobel laureate on environmental sciences and atmospheric chemistry. I did my PhD there. And, uh, and you know, I, I didn't come here looking for technology and entrepreneurship and all that. I think I came here looking to learn and to, you know, somehow make my dreams come true. And I didn't quite know what my dreams were, except I knew one thing very early on, which was that I was one of the lucky few out of a population at that point of 180 million, and now it exceeds 220 million of Pakistan. One of the lucky few who was able to get away and get exposure to the opportunities here. So for me, it was really interesting and important and then almost like a weight that sort of was on my shoulders that I, it can't just be about making it for myself. It can't just be about making a little bit of money and having a comfortable life and a house and a dog and the American dream. It has to be a little bit more than that. And I think that's the path that took me away from from academia into industry and uh, wanting to have an impact on a greater number of people proverbially creating these jobs and, and, and obviously doing something, whether it's inventing things, which I did in my startup and building, building a company or now what I'm doing, it, it's slightly more scale way with a lot of companies, you know, helping set foundations for a lot of people like me, not just immigrants, but all people to get opportunities to, to make something of themselves. And, and that, I think, that scales. That has a lot of people that get impacted, and that really drives me till today.
1: Yeah, no, that's fascinating. You've done a lot more than than invest and build toothpaste, that's for sure. And that's, that's part of what I want to talk about. So you, you went to MIT. You mentioned you started a company there. Today, I think you're widely viewed as one of the leading investors in deep technology. You've been doing it for a long time. You know, I've seen some of it. And been very successful at it. I want to talk about one of those deep tech companies. So SailDrone had a very interesting launch three days ago, right? A 22 meter uh, automated uh, vehicle they put out there. It's a fascinating company. 10 or 15 years ago, we may not have even imagined it was needed, let alone productized and what they're doing. Can you just talk a little bit about SailDrone? And I think what's interesting is there was a need that was not met, they put a tremendous amount of technology together. And it's just, it's going in so many different directions. And it's such a fascinating story. What, what is, talk a little bit about how it started and, and how you've sort of watched it grow. Yeah, look,
0: a few things here. One, entrepreneurs are incredible people. Nothing is impossible to an entrepreneur. They see a problem, they want to solve it. And the problem can be some of the biggest problems in the world. Our world, we seem to think we know a lot about it. But the reality is that we don't. We actually only, until recently, didn't even have enough satellites in space to know what's going on on Earth. Only in the last five years, we've put enough satellites in space that now, if you go out and paint your exterior walls purple, within the next few days, it will change on Google Maps to a purple wall. Before then, maybe just more than, just under six years ago, five, six years ago, if you did that, it wouldn't change on the Google Maps for the next six to 12 months, because that's the refresh rate that we had. Now we have satellites in space that we can see every inch of earth on everyday basis, and sometimes more than once a day. Now, sea uh, and oceans, water covers about 70 plus percent, you know, we grew up that, what learning about that in primary school, 70% of the earth's surface is covered with oceans, and we know very little about it. 98% of that uh, ocean surface is not mapped. We don't know what the terrain looks like. We need to lay out cables for long distance connectivity. We don't know whether we have mountains underneath, where we, what is the terrain that we're going into. For warfare, we don't know that. We don't know our fisheries. We sort of make guesses and decide that the fishing season ends this time of the year, but not that time of the year. And so on and so forth. We have, you know, huge issues related to carbon change. You know, I mean, I, I did my PhD work, which was very much related to climate change. And in carbon exchange at the ocean surface is really the biggest unknown in climate models around the world, how much carbon dioxide gets absorbed by the oceans and will it continue to happen? And as the ocean mixes over, what if this CO2 starts coming out of the oceans and what will that do to our to our climate and our, to our environment? Richard, the CEO there is an incredible guy and he decided that we should be able to map this out. And the way you do that is you can't have manned ships that cost hundreds of millions of dollars will have 30 to 60 people on board to do some research around the world that would cost millions of dollars a day. You can't have that operating and doing this data analysis. You you know, applications abound. Um, So he said, we need to create a autonomous system to be able to do that. And he went build that and he built a fully autonomous drone that has scientific quality instrumentation to do full monitoring on the surface, in the air and deep ocean monitoring. And he launched... You know, a hundred of them over the last couple of years that go all around the world and collect all the data and bring back that data. and, And that data is used by NOAA and NASA and, you know, Navy and fisheries and climate change researchers all over the world and so on and so forth few days ago he launched a 72 foot boat. so this is again fully autonomous 72 feet is a big boat. Uh, no man on board and this boat is able to go into places which are extremely dangerous you know high seas and high winds and you know ice breaking side you know areas and uh, you wouldn't want to put humans in danger there. Now you can have all your instrumentation, all the research being done autonomously on, on, on board the ship. And, and I think it's, you know, again, as I said, humans are brave. And if you had told me that somebody would be doing this 10 years ago, I would have said, whoa, that's impossible. This guy's doing it and has done it. And, and now we're able to dig into our oceans and understand what, you know, what lies in there, not only for things that we need to protect our future, such as climate change, but there's an entire world called the blue economy is the word, the word that's being used for it because so much of our economy, we don't understand or relies on oceans. You know, like a lot of the stuff that you and I buy all the time from, you know, made in China, Taiwan, whatever arrives here, not by air freight. It wouldn't be affordable to us if it arrived by air, it arrives by sea. And minor adjustments in the movement of these boats and bar- bar- barges can change, uh, you know, the time of arrival, but more importantly, how much fuel you consume uh, and has huge implications on the economy.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. I'm fascinating. I'm I'm really interested to track as it makes its way through the oceans because my daughter actually is interested in marine biology. And we've pulled up Sail Drone and you can see the path and see some of the data and the videos. And it's so it's got a set of business applications that, that you talked about, but it inspires people too, as, as it does with my daughter. And I think that's one of the it's very tangible, right? It's very real. It's not some software that's sort of in, in zeros and ones. And I think it uh It's really interesting. So, you know, Anil, one
0: thing I'd like to add here is that, you know, one of the things that society will measure startups by is not only how well they did and what valuation they were when they went public, but also what net value they created for society in the long term. So creating companies that are multi-generational companies that will create products and services that benefit all people. Uh, and whose alumni then go on to create more companies that create more value for society. I think this is how we value and we look at startups when we are investing. There are a lot of ways to make easy money, right? Some friends of mine who did the same PhD program as me ended up going to Wall Street, pushing papers around and making millions of dollars a year. Nothing against them, some of my close friends. But I think, you know, doing anything in life, especially starting a business is hard. If I asked you to start an Indian restaurant around the corner from your home, it would probably consume all of your time and all of your resources, and it's a really hard thing to do. So if you're going to do something hard anyways, you might as well not just start an Indian restaurant, but start something that is going to change people's lives, that's going to affect the future generations, and that's gonna create jobs, and it's gonna create, you know, sort of push humanity forward. And, And I think fortunately, especially in America, there's a lot of people who have that dream and that sort of no fear attitude to go about their startups.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. And, you know, I've, I've run into them uh, as we've had sort of various founders discussions and whatnot. And it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work as you talk about. But I think what I hear from you and I heard when you talked about uh, your early days is a level of mission driven, right? Like it's that mission might be about uh, climate change. That mission might be about making the best of an opportunity that you had. Um, you have one of you know, hundreds of millions of people to have the opportunity to come here. And I think that mission-driven mentality lets you get through the ups and downs, right? Inevitably there's ups and downs and stay focused on that sort of far out point, way up and way above the horizon that sort of only, only a founder can see sometimes.
0: I think you're absolutely
1: right. Mission-driven
0: founders are able to see what the endpoint is. They may not know how to go from here to there, but because they know what the endpoint is, philosophically as well as sometimes realistically, it allows them to at least start the journey. And every step of the way, they look at, you know, hey, how can I take two steps forward and only one step back and keep moving in that direction? They're not hesitant to go left and to go right and to pivot and to pirouette. They're not, they're not afraid to do that. And they're not afraid to take as long as it takes because they can see what lies at the end. This is, by the way, very different than, you know, when I was in school, there was a lot of this this word that I don't hear about very often, thankfully, this word called serial entrepreneur, right? There was this idea of like this, this thing, oh, he's a serial entrepreneur. He started a lot of companies, you know, a lot of, I mean, nothing against serial entrepreneurs. In fact, some of them are amazing, but that terminology somehow almost says that this is like rinse and repeat formula. That's not how it works. I mean, you've done this now. You could not have guessed nine years ago when you and I started this journey that, This is how long it'll take. And this is how many, you know, sidesteps we will have to take to make that dream come true. But that's what it takes. And if you didn't have that perseverance, and if you and your partner, Mike, didn't have that vision of what it can be, we wouldn't be here. But there are many easy exits along the way to sort of optimize for the short term. But you guys had a vision for the long term. And I think great entrepreneurs always have that, which is why when they talk about what they're trying to achieve in life. It's not some grand statements with a lot of ifs and buts and whatever, no. It's usually something very simple. I wanna cure cancer. I wanna provide human security, right? I wanna protect this world against climate change. It's something simple and it sounds almost like, but well, that doesn't really mean anything. No, 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 no. It means a lot to that person. It has an entire roadmap associated with that. It has all kinds of permutations and combinations associated with that that will come that they don't even know about embedded in it because the goal is very clear to them this is what is so special about even an entrepreneur that you know obviously all of us know like Elon Musk right like put the shenanigans aside the eccentricities and the craziness aside I mean he's crazy but a crazy guy that has a dream of going to Mars right and many people would say that's stupid you know, we can't cure and solve for malaria in India where people are dying of malaria and you want to talk about going to Mars. But you know what? The path to Mars takes him through a whole lot of steps along the way where he's created a tremendous amount of value. He's changed society in many ways and he's inspired millions of people who will then work on other things that will benefit all of us. And I think that, that sort of clarity of thought and, 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 and idea is something that's special among entrepreneurs. And to be honest, when we find that, we latch onto it like nobody's business. Yeah. That's what we do. We, we follow yeah. where entrepreneurs take us.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And so one of the things that we've had conversations about, and I know you've been very involved with is, you know where does this innovation come from? And if we think about you know the 1980s and, and earlier, there was so much funding that went into the US defense sector, right? And there was, or you go even back further, right? To ARPA and the internet. So much funding that went into that, and that generated a lot of the innovations that then trickled out into the commercial world. You're spending a lot of time with companies at the earliest stages through through the more, through the more mature stages. How have you seen that change in where innovation comes from, and how does it come about? And and you talked about these multi generational companies, and in them spinning off sort of entrepreneur children, so to speak. H- what have you seen from uh, from that perspective? I mean, look, we we are very fortunate in this country that we, we had a certain set
0: of circumstances that came about because of people's doing that enabled this amazing entrepreneurial, innovative ecosystem to thrive. People from all around the world wanna come and be like, how do I build a Silicon Valley? And by Silicon Valley, not the geography, but the idea of Silicon Valley in their countries. And it's, it's hard. You know, We had the patent office. We said, if you invent something, you have the right to commercialize it exclusively, right? And I think that was really special because it meant that go and invent, because if you invent something, you earn something that will last with you for a long time and will really benefit you. So we had created the invention economy in some ways. And then we had the idea of risk capital, where people said, you know, we will give you money to go build this. We will take a percentage of your company. But you know what? We're not going to take like 90% of your company where you're just working for peanuts. We want you to go build it for yourself and your family and your employees. And we want to be minority investors. We want to be partners with you. That started to happen. And then post-Second World War, obviously, there was tremendous amount of capital that flowed in because the military said, you know, look innovations in radar and other things, you know, led us to our victory in the First World War Was and Second World War. It was our technological advantages that, that allowed us to overwhelm others. You know, if you go back more than 30 years, the way innovation used to happen, especially the type of deep tech innovation, sophisticated technology innovation used to happen, that you had military that would provide the research grants, DARPA and otherwise grants would come in, universities and others would work on these ideas and come up with prototypes then they would be given to these military research labs you know air force research lab or you know army research lab they would then work on it on productizing it for the military and then it would be given over to uh, primes who would then build it for the military so the military would have access to that technology first over time it would get cheaper to use and released to the commercial sector so then the enterprises could start using it and then eventually it will end up with the consumers way down the road. So the nature of technology development was sort of a little bit of a top-down approach, military, commercial, and then consumer. As technology development paced better, as we started to see that the, the ideation, innovation, invention all can happen in a very distributed fashion, not only in every research lab and every university, but in companies themselves. And the risk capital became available where I, people like myself, VCs are willing to give you money on the basis of an idea, not even a product yet, right? That led to innovation happening everywhere. It was a distributed invention, distributed innovation system, which means today we are in an environment that the latest and the greatest technologies get developed for the consumers first in a lot of sectors. I mean, maybe not the frigates that the Navy needs, but certainly the cell phones and the AI and the chips They're useful for you. They're being developed. The latest cutting edge technology is being developed in cameras and chips and sensors for your phones and for your cars, right? And then they become become so ubiquitous that commercial sector then says, you know, which has become more conservative, okay, we should use that too and then they go to the military. Think about it in 2006, you and I could go and buy a phone and the iPhone when it came out that has the first ever touch interface. Amazing invention, before that we all had buttons, right? But we could we could get that, you and I got that because we saw it on screen, Steve Jobs talking about it and we bought it. A military four-star general did not have access to it for at least four or five years after that, right? They were still stuck in the Blackberry modes and whatever else that they were using, right? So. I think the, it, it's, it's incredible that there is now this distributed capability within America to build technologies. We're not you know, reliant on a few universities and a few research labs. And I think we're going to see the space speed up even more so because the more you get into the software world, the easier it gets. All I need is my laptop to go invent. And what's happening now, which is the, another interesting facet is that automation is bringing another level of excitement into all of this. So when I was in lab 20 years ago, I was at MIT, you would go into a lab to create a new molecule to, to work on biotech drugs and whatever. You went into a molecule, into a lab and you stayed there overnight for many, many nights pipetting things and you know, doing experiments. And if you were the scientist, a whole part of your job was to do these experiments, right? Today, you and I can be designing drugs, sitting in a Starbucks, working on our computers, pressing one button and automated third-party labs are going to do all the experiments and send us the results. No different than me writing a code, sending it out, running it on a computer, and it comes back with the results, right? Doing it in the cloud. Yeah. And what you and I are doing is not just writing code. We're, we're discovering medicines. We're discovering drugs, right? And this is, we're discovering new materials. So this is the exciting part that's happening where. Hardware and software and all of this is coming together to not just enhance, you know, a lot of people who talk about, you know, oh, this is only for, you know, social media companies and all that, no, it's affecting everything. The tech company that created this vaccine for, for, for Pfizer, which all of us are getting now in America, hopefully all of us will get soon, it was developed in two days, you know? Exactly. It wasn't two days of pipetting. It yeah. was two days of modeling. Right, We have tons of molecular dynamic scientists who do experimental work to figure out what a protein structure looks like. Now, DeepMind has released algorithms that 99% accuracy, they can tell you what the protein structure looks like. So you don't have
1: to do those experiments. It's amazing what's happening in science and it's good for all of us. So as as an investor, and, and I know Lux pretty well, you guys are very thematic, right? You think very thoughtfully about major trends and what's going on almost at a foundational level of technology and you're starting to, to 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 touch on it what are some of those themes that you're thinking about and you guys have are investing behind or believe are going to change sort of the technology landscape going forward and we'll we'll talk about sort of products later but I'm interested in the in 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 peering behind the veil and getting into Bilal's line, mind a little more and understanding what what he really is thinking about when he's in sure. those Lux partner meetings I mean, this is, this is interesting.
0: So this is a question we get asked a lot. You know, What is next? Right? Because if you tell us what is next, we'll go invest in that. We all, often say internally this rule of 100-0-100, right? I'm 100% sure that Lux will be investing in some of the most interesting things in technology. And that is because that is our mandate. Okay? Our mandate is not just to go make money. Our mandate is to go make money while pushing the frontiers of technology. I have 0% surety of where, what those technologies are going to be, right? Like I am not walking with a blank white piece of paper with my little map and said, this needs to exist and then go make that happen. But I'm 100% also sure that what we invest in next is most likely going to be found at the outer edges of what we have already invested in, right? And we see that repeatedly again and again and again. So the, and then one of the examples that we quote internally a lot is you know, we were looking at metamaterials almost a decade ago as a new class of materials that's going to be used in cloaking devices. Now, not exactly a very large market for cloaking devices besides outside of Harry Potter. But that turns out that that material can be used also to create, you know, antenna systems for satellite communications, you know, some of that technology is being used by Evolve technology and other things for other applications. So we invested in a company that was using that to make satellite antennas, carbon uh, antennas. And we invested in that We're alongside Bill Gates. Working with them, they told us, you know, hey, have you thought about these nanosatellites, these satellites that are the size of a shoebox? Now, I had visited a satellite factory. These are $300 million machines that are the size of an entire building that takes another 300 to $400 million of fuel and launch cost to put them into the air. And these are like shoebox-sized satellites. went looked at it and like wow this is interesting there's a group of people out of nasa that's working on these small satellites we ended up investing in them and that was planet which is building these which today owns the largest constellation of earth observing satellites now talking to you know planet we're like there is going to be an order of magnitude more data that's now going to be available that wasn't available before who's going to analyze that how are we going to analyze that no different than the fact that you and I, when we were in college, we probably had one camera per family, and now we have like, what, eight or 10 cameras per person in our household. I'm looking at like five cameras in front of me right now. This is not going to be analyzed by humans. We are not taking photos for ourselves. We're taking photos to be analyzed by machines to do, figure out what, what is useful in it for us. That led us to say there's, gonna be an automa- there's got to be an automated way of analyzing satellite and drone imagery. So we looked at a company called Orbital Insight, a guy who had left Google, who was looking, working on Google Books and uh, left to say, you know, use machine learning, AI, and computer vision to look at satellite imagery to pick up signals that can be applied to many industries. So we ended up investing in Orbital Insight. Orbital Insight guided us to say, hey, all of this stuff that we're doing, we're not building racks and data centers behind, we're doing it all on the cloud, because now the GPUs that we need to do this is all available in the cloud. So we're like, that's interesting. The only real GPU company we know of is NVIDIA. So is the entire world going to use just NVIDIA computers? There's got to be better technologies and new companies. So we invested in that area. We found a guy called uh, Naveen who built a company called Nirvana. And Nirvana ended up being an investment for us that was quickly acquired by Intel. And that was being built for, for cloud computing. And we said, well, what about at the edge? Right? All of this data is not gonna get sent into the cloud. If you have a small device working in the field, you don't have the internet connectivity available at least today to send it into the cloud. So he said, how do you take AI compute at the edge? That takes us to Mythic, which is a new investment that we made a few years ago, which is now a very profitable, successful company in its own ways. So you know, if you look at this trajectory, it's like, I could not have told you, you know, 10 years ago that we would be investing in a edge computing company uh, called Mythic. right? But if you follow the path, you can see how it leads to the other. We operate today in the same ways. There are certain ideas that we hold, you know, true. Like, for example, we believe that this is a decade of biocomputation. Like, things that we were previously could not imagine happening in compute can now be done. Instead of developing drugs only on looking at humans and doing in vitro type work, you can actually look at cells and run a single experiment millions of times on individual cells and look at the changes in cell morphology to figure out drugs. We're doing that. Developing tools and technologies like microscope systems that can look at individual live cells to understand the process that happens inside a cell. That leads us to a new way of discovering new drugs and solutions. So uh, that is a big theme. Another theme for me is simulation. I, I believe that you know everything, what we design, how we engineer, how we manufacture, how we tech, test and how we deploy in the physical world all of those things are going to be done in simulation first. Autonomous cars are not going to all be driving around test circuits for years before they become real to us. It's going to be simulated and amazing technologies are available so we've invested in Applied Intuition which is a company focused on providing simulation tools to the autonomous industry to build solutions but that applies everywhere. If you can take an entire You know, from a molecule that can be simulated and its operations and its chemistry and biology can be simulated all the way to giant factories and entire bridges and wind turbines, everything can be simulated. And if you can't simulate that, you know, obviously there's a lot of work to do there. There's there's probably tens, if not hundreds of incredible multi-billion dollar companies that will get created along the way. Um, but I think this is this is the future where we will do things in simulation that we have not been able to do before. We will first do pure uh, silicon simulation, which will tell us a hundred things that we never knew. You can take a single scenario and simulate it a million times with all kinds of edge cases on it uh, using synthetic data and real world data and otherwise. We will do hardware in the loop simulation. So how will this hardware actually work in a simulated environment? So you can start you know, you can start iterating on a hardware independently of the real world environment and simulate it to see the, how the hardware works. So you can have the iteration cycle, uh, development cycles get up. And then you do human in the loop simulation. Like how is this hardware software system with a human operating with it? How will they work together? And and how will that, that come together? How will this robot that we have built work in the human environment? And I think that will be really interesting. I mean, give you, and I'll stop here. because I don't want to go on and on, but you know, when American Disabilities Act came around, it was a huge fight. It was before my time in in this country. but certainly it was for dis- disabled people to have access to ramps. right and And there was a you know struggle for it, and finally they won. and then, then we put ramps everywhere, you know, and every sidewalk has these ramps at the end of the sidewalk, right? and And the reason was that, you know, people who are on wheelchairs should be able to use it. But we hadn't simulated it, and we didn't know, but one of the biggest benefits that we got out of those was that if you were a mother who was pushing, you know, a a stroller, or if you were a FedEx worker that was pulling a wagon with, you know, stuff on it, you could actually go from place to place without bending your back and hurting yourself. And that enabled a huge change. Today, that same ecosystem that was built for disabled people, you know, decades ago is being used by sidewalk robots, fully autonomous sidewalk robots that are bringing your DoorDash food to you. Right. And a few days ago, I nearly ran one over in Mountain View because it was side of the road with the flag and the little radar going, waiting for me to go so that then it will cross the street at that uh, ramp to get to the other side to then deliver the food to somebody else. Right. So, you know, how do you build your society to integrate robots and how do you build your robots to integrate with the society? These are not things you have to guess anymore. It's not something you have to depend on a few people's knowledge that you put them into a room. Now you can do that in simulation and do that better. The same thing applies to security and your industry. You don't have to guess. You don't have to put five people, X security experts in a room and say, how do I secure this giant building? You can actually simulate that. You can simulate the kind of threats that might be there. You can simulate the kind of technologies that you have available. And you can simulate the security operations that you're going to be need to dealing with that and you can come up with a much better solution. It's not gonna be a perfect solution. You still need the human input into this, but human input in simulation will allow you to accelerate things and be a better uh, predictor of what the future might look like.
1: I think it's fascinating, Bilal. Also, if we distill down some of the technological themes you talked about and think about a theme park or a stadium or a museum or a school or a workplace or any of the places that, that you know, I spent a lot of time talking to, and then tie this back to the, the early comment you made about the Pfizer vaccine and how essentially they were using its simulation and, and modeling to very rapidly go through what used to be wet lab experiments, right? The, and, and those were somewhat linear, right? You could run a couple in parallel, but not thousands in parallel, right? So you have that capability. How should we think about that changing the way a sports stadium might think about a game and and it's not it's security is part of it, crowd flow is part of it, you know, how many people come in, where do they go? What are some of the unforeseen events or issues that might come up? Right. There's I can I can as I listen to you talk about simulation, you can start to think about if you put a digital hat on, how you might plan in a, a game day event. And then actually during the event, right, things happen so quickly. How to use technology to react and respond more quickly?
0: So there is tremendous amount of information that is obviously resident in those who operate these, these facilities and, and understand the nuances, right? But that said, it's still limited. There's only that many days in the year, and there's only that many events that could take place at a stadium in a given year. So the number, of, the amount of data points that you will have is still going to be limited. You know, oh, the last time we had somebody walk in with a gun was like three years ago, and you know we were hosting a baseball game. Uh, and then you think back to that and what went wrong, and what didn't work, and what sort of a response worked, and and you know what kind of second order problems got created. In simulation, you could take that one scenario that happened maybe two years ago or two months ago. And now you can say, let me simulate all, let me first design the physics of it, understand the physics of it. These are people, these are you know operators, this is the kiosks, this is the stadium, these are the VIP section where you know maybe somebody important is there, president is visiting, these are the technologies that I have available, the camera systems that I have available, security screening at the threshold is available and so on and so forth. So right, you can model out first the physics of it. And then you say, okay, now I have one data point, right? This is what happened. Let's play out that, that one physical event that happened. And you say, you know, this is how my systems responded. That's how you're tying down your systems to make sure that, you know, hey, yeah, my camera has detected that this happened or my security failed and did not detect that a one gun went through. Um, but once you figured that out, your next time, when you're predicting out what the future could look like, the next time it's not going to happen the same way, right? Like it's going to be some other thing. What do you do then? That's where simulation could come in. Where you say, okay, now I have my entire physical space, the entire stadium is 3D, you know, designed and modeled in my in my simulator. I have all the people, the as many tens of thousands of people that are in, you know, that are modeled in here. My security staff is modeled here. My security systems are modeled here. Now I want to throw in a million variations of it. What if it's not a gun? What if it's many people with guns? What if it's knives, right? What if it is actually not... Terrorist threat, but a fight that erupts between fans of opposing teams. Right? What if there is a problem at the door? What if there's a problem on the field? What if the lights like what if our yeah like what if what if the speaker system goes out? I mean, you can imagine. I mean, you you got you're an expert at it. I'm not, but you can imagine a million variations can happen. The light time of the day. You have disabled people that can't walk fast enough. You have I mean, all kinds of issues, right? So now you can model those simulations out and you can see number one, how will this scenario play out? And you can see how will our institution, how will our con ops, how will our security systems react to it? Yeah. What is missing? You can identify what technologies are simply missing, right? And and you know that does not necessarily mean that you automatically can have something sitting off the shelf and pick it up and put it in there. But at least you will know that there's something missing, yeah. you know? Hey, we have a problem evacuating people who may be pregnant, disabled, or something else that don't have the physical mobility. How do we deal with this? Right. Or we have an information lack of information here. How do we deal with that? So I'm a big Red Sox fan. You know, on a normal day, I have a hard time figuring out where the hell do I am I supposed to go to get the T-shirts? Right in the middle of that crowd, let alone in the middle of like a freaking you know disaster that might unfold. And how do I get out of there fast enough? those are narrow streets, even outside the stadium, let alone what's happening inside the stadium. So when I think about all of this, typically what would happen today? Typically, you would get a bunch of people, maybe a round table together and all the experts will get together. A panel will sit maybe for a month. They will have a whole bunch of meetings. They will review all the technologies, review all the you know custom uh, presentations made by experts. And you'll come up with sort of a best guess plan. You know, I think you know, we may end up with drones attacking us with bombs, but what's the likelihood of that? I don't know. Um, okay, let's not worry about that. Let's worry about somebody walking in with guns. So let's have gun threshold security yep. system. That's how decisions get made today. There's got to be a better way. Yep. I think simulation systems are becoming powerful enough to enable you to do that. And, and, and I'm not just harping on about simulation. I think just generally data is now becoming available to us to make decisions better, to make them also in real time where this failed, what do I do next? Just this last, doesn't even feel like last week, <laughs> you know, just past week, you know, we had the capital raided and our some of the finest security systems in the world, you know, the most elite of our security forces were left unguarded. Yeah. They could not have, you know, what was the answer we heard? We did not anticipate so many people coming through. Yeah. Well, okay, if you are, simulating that and again we don't even have to talk about some high-end sophisticated simulation you just have to do scenario modeling as sort of the most basic of simulation systems you could have guessed you have problems like how would you then deal with this how do you block off entrances how do you deal with people inside they probably had con ops which is thankfully why you know much fewer lives were lost than could have been lost but still we now know that we're living in a much more unfortunate as it may be, much more dangerous world than existed you know, before us. We have threats of gun violence every day, everywhere. And our job is to now figure out how do we plan for that and how do we train for that and how do we then put in systems in place, including technology in place to be able to deal with that scenario when it arises.
1: Yeah, no, and as I think about in my mind what you're saying, a lot of the response, so there's scenario modeling to plan, but then there's also the, the actual real-time response. A lot of security response is comms, right? It's people with earpieces in, which generally is one-to-one. It can be one-to-many, but as we've seen, it gets really chaotic. But if you can turn that into data and then let the data be presented to each individual on their phone or in some consumable way, right? And that data becomes more information, right? Or knowledge on what to do, not just what's happening. That can totally change the paradigm of an individual security professional, and essentially how empowered they are, and how quick they are to respond to what's happening there.
0: Absolutely. Look, again, going back to the theme of consumer to enterprise, and then defense, it's happening. You and I, we don't have to now remember our favorite three restaurants and their phone numbers, or their taxi cab and its phone number and call them up and, you know, five 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 one two one two. I want a cab to go here. Or, you know, hey, Papa John's, can you send me? You and I can go to DoorDash and because of simply data availability on a simple SYN interface, I can look at a hundred restaurants and I can see, you know, today I feel like having, yeah, I, I thought about it, but Vietnamese sounds pretty good. And it's right at the press of a button, I can order Vietnamese food just as easily as I could have ordered pizza. In fact, easier than ordering pizza. Right? So that simple interface, that simple availability and aggregation of data and presented in a way that allows our decision making. And there's a lot of research done on it, by the way. It, DoorDash is not just a bunch of people putting buttons in place, right? There's a lot of UI UX research that goes into it on the size of the buttons, the kind of a button, the workflow, how many buttons you have to press to get before you get your order, how to make sure that you don't miss out on something, but also you don't have to go through a you know, nested menu that's 100 steps long using all of this for our own decision-making in security systems as well, right? Like how do you have, this is all technology is going to develop and it's going to develop fast. You know, you and I, as we have become used to Googling everything, I started with you know 20 years ago, 15 years ago. You would Google something. Now, when I Google something, I don't have to click on something. The answer is right there. When I'm looking for the Red Sox scores, I don't have to say Red Sox scores, and 17 links show up, and I click on the first one, and it takes me to some Boston.com page that has the scores. No, Google already knows now that I'm probably the first thing I'm looking for is Red Sox scores. If I'm a newbie, I may be looking for a Red Sox history. So it gives me all of that right on the front page. Right? That is intelligent you know, information retrieval analytics, and that can be done for everything. So when, you know, Evolve, when a person passes through an Evolve system, you know, before you need to know all the details about everything, you just wanna know step one, is this person carrying a threat on their body, right? Is this person, so I don't need to know anything else about this person. I just need to know left pocket has a gun, right? That is what Evolve does. Guide the people quickly to where the threat is away from all other nonsense. And once you figure that out, then you can have other analytics on where this person is, if this person has gone through, where where have they been, what their profile is, how do we protect those guys from even getting to this part of the threshold? You know, I, I think there's a very interesting case to be made that information in our, you know, the, the kind of world that we live in and in is going to be extremely important because that's the only way you and I can, and all of us can go about our lives without feeling like we're going through a security theater, right? We just want to walk through and we just want to know that we are secure. We don't, you know, eventually we don't even want to have security threshold that looks like a security threshold that you're passing through. And I think that is imminently available. I think it's, very possible. It's very real, but it will require us to utilize data intelligently to build systems that enable that.
1: Yeah, and I, as I, I think it's a bit about the story of your investments that you walk through, right? One begets another, that begets another. Which is, as we start to equip security professionals with more data, really, that's really insight, right? They will ask more questions, which will cause us to get more data, which they'll get ask more questions, which will get them smarter, and then maybe sort of plug some holes right or address some security vulnerabilities but you got to start going down the path and you can't anticipate the end of that path it, it, part of it is the journey to get there right and I think it's a very interesting way to think about it because as I have talked to some folks in the different organizations that we work with it's a little bit of where do I get started, which can be extremely overwhelming. But part of it is just get started, right? Just have some ideas, much like you have themes for investing, they should have some themes. Data is gonna be important. I need to have our visitor or employee or fans at the center of what we do, this human-centered design idea. We need to use technology more uh, intelligently, right? And if they have some ideas that get them started down a path, that's what's important. And then once you get on the path, you'll start to learn more and go a little bit left or a little bit right. 100%, look, this is no different than Tesla's evolution,
0: right? Tesla did not start off by saying what we really need to build, even though it was very obvious in 2004 when the company started, that what we really need to build is an SUV that can carry six people and like 17 bags and two dogs and all that stuff, right? But if they had gone out to build that, they would have just died. They said, OK, maybe eventually we need that. Who knows that? Maybe we need a Tesla truck. Maybe we need a, you know, a sport. What they said was step one, take a car, an existing Lotus car, rip out the engine, Put in the, you know, rip out the engine, put in a motor, put in the batteries, and make it be the fastest sports car you've ever driven. Get started. The next step, okay, can we do that into a, not a two-seater, but a four-seater? You created the Model X and Model S. And you said, okay, can we use that, but do it at a lower cost? Now you take, create Model X. He said, hey, a uh, uh, Model 3, and say, okay, can we turn that into a SUE, because people are asking us. Now that we have built all of these things, we can make it bigger. And then we ended up with this beautiful falcon doors and the seven seater and all that. And the next step is, can we turn it into you know, a minivan? Can we turn it into a truck, okay? So you use, and now Tesla is, you know, valuation wise, you know, whatever, 700, $800 billion company, it did $30 billion or so of revenue last year. Now it is seen as like the electric car company when 16 years ago, it's like America has not created a new car company in 50 years. How will you create another one? It doesn't really work. So, you know, the beauty of American invention innovation ecosystem is that they're willing to take risks and people who are willing to run hard, run fast. A lot of people always think and in startups that, you know, your real advantage is the technology. You know, oh, so, so you're a startup. So, you know, what is your differentiated technology that nobody else has access to? And I think that's like a small part at best, right? Like, what can you do? Like, you know, your technology at Evolve is not like some one patent. It's not like some molecule that you invented that nobody else can now sell. It's a whole bunch of technologies from a lot of different disciplines that are coming together, right? And And technically, if another organization wanted to, they could put tens of millions of dollars and hundreds of people, and maybe try to replicate at least 80% of that, that type of solution. The problem is they will never do that. Your biggest advantage is the speed at which you innovate because you know that innovation is your lifeblood. You're constantly evolving. It's name in your name of your company. You're constantly evolving, constantly changing, responding to threats as they emerge. COVID was not a concern two, three years ago. COVID is a major concern today. And it will remain for the rest of time, right? If it, it, if number one, COVID will remain, but there'll be other things like COVID that we've now become aware of that it can be deadly, right? So how do you respond to that? How do you evolve fast and how do you put it out into the field and you learn from it and get better? That, you know, that's the kind of company I want to take a bet on I think that's the kind of company that your smart customers are going to want to take a bet on. Not on somebody who's, who took a five-year design cycle to come out with a product that is already you know, five years too old the day it arrives in the market. That is what is happening in the automotive industry today. I sold into that industry. My startup was in that industry. You had a five-year design cycle. When we got selected for a, for a car, that car wouldn't be produced for five years down the road. Right? because the technology development cycle was so slow. But now, are you kidding me? You know, Tesla is sending updates to the car while I'm still driving on the car, right? Like it's it's a, it's a different world. You do over the air updates on everything. You know, you could have a new face recognition algorithm or you may have a new threat, like a new terrorist that's been identified that you can push out and you can get it across cameras everywhere and say, find this person. That person that threatened to attack a congresswoman or that it turned into attack our senator, you know, that person was last identified here. Go find them, right? This is available and possible for us today. And it's possible using advanced technologies to do that while keeping privacy and preserving privacy, while preserving all our laws and all of that stuff. Using technology to our advantage is the only way to move forward.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So I want to stay a little bit on this innovative product area. We said we were going to talk about CES, so let's just talk. I know, but totally
0: made and switch on the CES. We
1: way over this way, but what I want to talk about—not just CES generally—I'm curious what you think about it as a virtual sort of sort of show. But we, what I've seen is there's a lot, and this goes back to your theme of the source of innovation. There's been a lot of interesting security technology that's actually started at the home level, not at the business level or at the defense level, right? Certainly around things like video. As you've Watch some of the C- CES you know, sessions and even more broadly, some of the products that you see, the business plans that come across your desk. What are the interesting products that might find their way into the security plans of these venues that we, we talk to every day? So quickly, I love CES. And in fact,
0: I would say everybody has a love-hate relationship with CES, right? Like we we love being there, and especially those of us who are in technology and and gadgets and gizmos, and but then we hate walking. This year, it's online. It hasn't been easy to follow it online, to be clear, because you know the random, the randomization that happens where you're walking down a hallway and you run across something and you're like, whoa, that's interesting. That's not possible. You almost like have to click through, and unless you want to click through ten thousand objects. Uh, you you know. But what is, what is really interesting, I always love going to CES for two reasons. Number one, to look at the trends that are coming in from the most tech forward companies. So where, because it's almost like, this is what we see as the future. And my job then becomes, let's find investments that see further than that, right? Like these guys are here, so don't invest in this because they, they'll get there in a year or two. What is the one after that? The second thing is that there's a lot of things that we think, you know, oh, this is like high tech, so cool. And then you go there and you realize that like 1800 companies from China that are doing exactly the same thing. And it's commoditizing it. Right. And again, back to if you're a defense company, you're like, whoa, there's a camera that can detect faces. How cool. And then you realize that every camera made in China can detect faces. Yeah. So, so it's, it's an important real, you know, it's, it, it sets the perspective right for, for me. There's a few things about you know, the, the, the CES or generally what's happening in, in the world. First is, yes, you're absolutely right. The same theme of things, amazing things happening at home with the cutting edge technologies being used is, is definitely happening. I mean, over the last year, all Americans are sitting at home. We brought things we used to do outside in our home. Right. Our, you know, we brought education home. We brought our health and, you know, I've been two hours. I have a doctor's appointment and I have a terrible back pain and I don't know how he or she is going to find out where the problem is, but they will have to figure it out. So better tools that can help them diagnose while I'm sitting at home. Today benefits me because I can't go to the hospital because of COVID, but tomorrow will benefit people who are elderly or who have other problems that it's hard for them to get to the hospital. We have brought food home. Right, like we, we order food that comes to us, but we're also cooking more. And as we cook more, we're like, wait, I want better devices. Like I, I, I want to be able to put on my lunch for cooking, but come out here and do these calls so it automatically cooks and shuts it off so that I don't have to run and worry that I'm gonna burn the kitchen down. All of this leads to new technologies. All of this leads to w- widgets and gadgets that might look like, you know, okay, that's just a new oven. But you know what, a new oven, like a June oven, my friend's company that just got bought by Weber, I use that. It has a camera inside, it recognizes the food. So when I put in, you know, bread for toasting, it automatically recognizes it's a bread. And all I have to, I don't have to put in two minutes, five minutes, press a button because it recognizes it's bread. Or it's recognized it's pizza, it's a hamburger, right? And and, and it has, it's internet connected. So I get an alert here, your food's ready. It automatically shuts itself off. It has a camera so I can see what the food looks like. So I can add another minute if I want to brown it some more. These technologies are going to become available to everyone. It's not going to be just for a, you know, $200 oven that I can buy and put on my shelf. So there's a lot of that happening. The important thing in there, the way I think about this is, you know, over the last 10 years, we've been beneficiaries. And this is not my words. Chris Anderson, uh, you know, use that first. Uh, we were beneficiaries of the peace dividends of the cell phone wars. So the cell phone wars happened in Nokia, Apple, this and that. And we had all these sensors that became cheap. You know, compute became cheap and, you know, eventually GP, you know, uh, GPS systems became cheap. You know, you can buy a GPS system for less than a dollar, which meant that you can, you know, instead of buying a GPS Tom Tom for 300 bucks, GPS is free. It right? doesn't cost you anything. And so we've been beneficiaries of all these sensors becoming available and we've, all we had to do was write software on top. So what's the next generation of technology like that coming through? I think it's going to be the piece dividends of the autonomous car force, right? So the sensors that are being used there, the radars, the LIDARs, the camera systems, the compute, all of this is gonna become very, very cheap to be used in the automotive world. So you can start writing apps on it. You know, high definition radar systems to detect if the elderly person has fallen in the bathroom, that's gonna be really helpful. Right? Like it's a device that was built for automotive use cases so you don't hit the car behind you. It's going to be used at home. You know, a, a Roomba robot that's not like banging against walls to figure out where to go, but has a LIDAR system to map out your home and figure out where to go and you know, not randomly find the thing that I dropped. Imagine if I dropped some cornflakes here. I have to wait until maybe next day that the Roomba might find its way here. Right? What if I was able to direct the Roomba and, you know, and the Roomba automatically detected that something has happened here? And immediately came and cleaned this instead of the entire house, right? So this is this is going to be real, and it's going to get used everywhere. If you're going to use it Roomba at home, the same thing can be used for doing you know golf courses and mowing the lawns, and golf courses can be done automated. So so I think that's that's going to be interesting. The, the, and, and there's a lot of stuff happening. So there's, there's you know, 5G is becoming real, a lot of technology there. And that that people are talking about smart cities, vehicle-to-vehicle communications, vehicle-to-everything communications, you know, sanitization systems. You know, people people need that now. Like, how do I sanitize my office? How do I sanitize my workplace, my conference rooms? People are looking a lot at the infrastructure as well. Like, how do you build infrastructure? They're literally technologies to charge your car while you're driving on the road. But if you're thinking about that, that, oh, that's interesting. Going back to the conversation around ramps, how can we change our physical infrastructure to better accommodate technology? What will entrances into convention centers look like if you had to optimize it for security? Will they still be wide open doors or will they look different? Like that's something to think about, right? Like uh, you know, people in the Mediterranean did this differently. And then the last bit is business models are very important. So it used to be, there's a few different business models. It used to be hardware sell. I sell you something and then I, because it's a one-time sale, I have to sell you something again, like better in two years, which is, you know, so you can buy again. The second part was hardware plus software. I'll sell you hardware, but then I'll sell you a subscription service that goes with it. Now the subscription could be, you know, the coffee pods that you keep buying more coffee and that's how I make money. Or the subscription could be like a Peloton or something like that. And then eventually we're getting to a place where people are like, wait, I can actually give you the hardware for free because the service what I'm providing to you is really important. So security system is a good part of that, right? Like I have a deep Sentinel security system, one of my portfolio companies guarding my house. The hardware costs a few hundred bucks, but they can give it away for free because I am not interested in buying hardware that gives me alerts all the time. I want somebody, if somebody's at my door trying to break open, I want somebody to interfere and do something about it, right? So they have you know, AI com- combined with human guards, looking at my doors and, 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 you know, place around my house to intervene. And for that, I'm willing to pay them 50 or hundred bucks a month. And if I'm paying them hundred bucks a month, that's like, you know, thousand plus dollars a year. And if I'm doing that, then they can give me the $200 hardware for free. That I think you're going to see, and I'm seeing that at CES across, you know, a lot of different technology areas where people are thinking of, you know, this amazing hardware, let me not just tell you what hardware can do, but let me tell you the service that's wrapped around it because that is really important.
1: That's great. So one final sort of brief question because we're, we're hitting up on the hour now. For those listening, for the practitioners out there, on Monday morning, you know, what do they do differently? And, and the specifically, I'm gonna ask you, so we've talked about a wide range of technology and where do you get started and getting down the path, but like, what's one piece of advice you have for them to start to, to get down that path or what should they do differently Monday than they haven't been doing this week so they could start to take, think about how this might impact their organizations and them? Interesting, I could come up with a lot but here's what I would say. Look, there was a famous blog
0: post written by Mark Andreessen a few years ago that was called Software is Eating the World, right? The idea was that everything that used to be done in hardware is not being done in software and you know, software is eating up the world. Uh, I would say if software is eating the world, data and simulation, is helping rebuild it, right? So if you go on Monday, think about everything that you use, your TV screen, your camera, your cooking systems, right? Look around you, your everyday life. And you say, if I had more data, how would my experience change? The fact that we are in a world where it's, you know, even pizza delivery places barely remember the pizza I ordered last time. So you have to every time enter the same damn thing again. Yes, I would like it with chicken on it. Yes, I would like the other half with green peppers. If, if that's where we are in the real world still, imagine the opportunity that lies ahead in the commercial world, like for you to build a company around it. Like if you could just personalize, customize, you know, use data to build better systems, to predict the future and to be able to go build that, how powerful can it be? Most incumbents not only don't understand this, but more importantly, can't be bothered to do it. They look at this as some yeah, R&D work. This is yours to have. This is yours to get. Uber is a multi-billion dollar company. When, when Steve Jobs started iPhone, he did not think an app for calling the cab would be one of the largest companies built on it, right? But the basic thing it did was it said, I have data on exactly where you are because you have a GPS on your phone and I know exactly where the driver is because the GPS on this phone and I can do a very simple correlation algorithm to make sure that I get the right driver sent to you. That's all I have to do. I mean, I mean, obviously I'm simplifying it, but that generated so many companies. Each one of them are worth like tens of billions of dollars what can you do because there's so much data available in every aspect and facet of life we're just not using it we're throwing it out your security company is a good example of that every single time i go through a security system they know nothing about me i'm just a man walking in and they stop me for the exact same reason maybe every single time right i may have a bone replacement a titanium bone every single time i have a heart you know defibrillator i get stopped for the same reason you should Bloody hell, know about me that this is who I am, right? So I don't get that same experience every single time. And this is what Evolve is doing, right? We're learning. Build a system that learn so that the, you know, not only the solution we're providing for security is better, but everybody else who's get affected by it finds that this is a better solution, better system, and a better experience. And I think it can be done in every industry.
1: That's tremendous, Bilal. As I expected, this would be wide ranging. We went wider even than than I thought we'd go, but it's been fascinating. It's been great. It reminds me of the conversations we had uh, in Cambridge as we were thinking about technologies and what to build a business around. So Bilal, thank you very much, very much for your time. and, And more importantly, your insights. Truly appreciate it. Love talking to you. Thanks, Anil. Great. And everybody out there, we want to thank you for all the work you're doing to keep people safe and to let them have a better experience as they come enjoy your venues. We really do appreciate it. It's very hard work. And hopefully we've given you some ideas to inspire you as you think about the future of your own venues. Thank you.